before we do so, I'd quickly like to provide you with um, some figures. There are 9.2 million immigrants in the United States who are eligible for citizenship, uh, and only 2,500, uh, I'm sorry, 2,500, I'm so sorry, several immigrants live in Massachusetts, but only 10% uh, managed to naturalize. Why is that? Because there are several obstacles to citizenship. I'm having some tech issues, okay. Um, namely, there are fees associated with the citizenship application, $725 have to be paid. The applicant must speak English and they must pass a US history and civics exam. And so they may, um, not feel comfortable with their level, level of English and they will not apply for citizenship. There's also fear to um, interact with immigration officers. These are some of the obstacles uh, to citizenship. At Project Citizenship, we provide free legal services to permanent residents to help become citizens of the United States. And we offer free workshops, eligibility screening, um, application assistance, uh, and also legal referrals to other organizations who can help with different matters. There are certain benefits uh, associated with citizenship. Uh, a US citizen can bring their family members in the United States so that families are united. And also citizenship empower individuals. They have the right to vote, the right to travel uh, freely. Um, there are some restrictions to traveling for immigrants. Um, they can receive government benefits and gener in general, the, a US citizen is more uh, secure and uh, accepted by society. Uh, very briefly, 72% of our uh, clients are low-income clients, uh, clients that, uh, who fell below the poverty guidelines. And we also assist applicants who have a disability and uh, who cannot learn English and civics because of their uh, disability. In 2021, 113 disabled applicants uh, applied with Project Citizenship and requested a waiver of the English and US history exam because of their disability. And 72% of our clients requested a fee waiver. They requested that the $725 fee uh, is waived because they are low income. Uh, very briefly, we really uh, rely on the support of our um, uh, lawyers and uh, volunteers. And in 2021, volunteers uh, donated uh, thousands of hours and 1,000 volunteers volunteered with us last year. Before we dive into the presentation, I would like to clarify certain abbreviations that I will be using throughout the presentation. USCIS stands for US Citizenship and Immigration Services. Um, uh, that's the agency of the United States that reviews citizenship applications and other sort, types of immigration applications. LPR stands for Lawful Permanent Resident. Uh, that is um, a, an immigrant who received a green card and became a lawful permanent resident of the United States. N-400 stands for uh, form N-400, and that's the number that identifies the application for naturalization. Here you have a specimen of the uh, green card. As you will see, there's the uh, first and last name of the applicant. You will also see the USCIS number or A number. That's the number that is associated with an immigrant's um, immigration record. And you will also see the date when the uh, immigrant became a resident. That's the date when they got their green card. 
there are several requirements that an applicant must meet in order to become a citizen of the United States and to be eligible for citizenship. They must be at least 18 years old. They must have had their green card for five years or three years if they've been married to a citizen of the United States. We will discuss about this later on during the presentation. They must be physically, physically present in the United States for at least half of the previous five years or three years. So you will see that uh, I will refer to the five-year period or the three-year period as statutory period. And they will also have to prove continuous residence in the United States for the past five years or three years. Um, they must be residents of Massachusetts uh, for at least three months prior to applying for citizenship. They must be individuals of good moral character they must uh, have a basic understanding of English, meaning that they must be able to have a conversation in English, they must be able to read and write English, and they also dem must demonstrate knowledge and understanding of US history and government, uh, because as mentioned before, there's the, the civics exam. Uh, the applicant must study from a list of, 10 of 100 questions and must uh, answer correctly to six um, question asks, uh, asked by the immigration officers at the interview, and they also uh, must understand the oath of allegiance to the United States and must be willing to take the oath. Uh, Form N-400s are heavily scrutinized because that's the last opportunity for USCIS to look at the applicant's immigration history before they become citizens of the United States. In general, uh, USCIS will not accept an application, meaning that they will not even uh, verify whether a client is eligible for citizenship or not, and they will return the application back to the applicant. So they will not accept an application which is missing any of the following uh, listed here, the applicant's signature, uh, the applicant's aid number, that's the green card number that I mentioned before, or the uh, application fee, that's the $725 that must be um, paid uh, when the application is submitted, or if the applicant qualifies for a fee waiver because of their income or because they receive certain public benefits, um, there must be a fee waiver filed with the uh, citizenship application. Um, And 400 applications can be denied. They're uh, sometimes denied. And uh, the risks associated with applying for citizenship and receiving a denial of an N-400 are, first, that the applicant will lose the $725 uh, fee. And that's because the fee is non-refundable. Uh, but also, um, if the officer, while reviewing the immigration history of the applicant, realizes that there's something wrong that perhaps the LPR, uh, the green card was obtained either illegally or there was um, their status is invalid, they may start removal proceedings to uh, remove, deport the applicant from the United States. That's why at Project Citizenship, we screen our clients thoroughly to make sure that no such issues arise during the interview. We don't want to put at risk our clients um, in any ways. Most common reasons for denial are uh, failing the English and civics test. Um, that does not prevent the applicant from uh, reapplying for citizenship. Uh, they will have to be prepared the next time they apply for citizenship. 
Other reasons for denial are criminal records. The applicant was convicted of certain crimes, and that has also an, uh, an impact not only on their eligibility for citizenship, uh, but also on their status, because certain crimes make uh, an immigrant deportable from the United States, and also overdue taxes, money that is currently owed by the applicant to the IRS or to uh, other state or tax uh, uh, authorities. You're considering volunteering for one of our workshops. So what is a workshop? A workshop is an appointment that we have with our clients where we have them fill out their citizenship application. We have both virtual workshops or in-person workshops. Virtual workshops are uh, by Zoom. Sometimes clients prefer to be called over the phone to have their uh, appointment. We can also do that. Um, the materials that are available for volunteers and the information provided to clients um, are exactly the same. It's just that the medium is different. Um, so how does a workshop work? There is a first phase uh, before the workshop starts where uh, Project Citizenship screens the client to verify whether they're eligible for citizenship, whether they, it's safe for the applicant to apply for citizenship. If we determine that the applicant can apply for citizenship, then we will schedule the uh, client for a workshop. And the first step of the workshop, the first uh, phase, um, has a volunteer, uh, normally a law student's complete form N-400 with the applicant. That's the application assistance phase. Once the, once the N-400 is completed, the uh, attorney reviews the N-400 with the applicant. That's the quality control phase. That's what you will be uh, doing uh, as uh, quality control attorneys at one of our workshops. After the workshop is over, uh, project citizenship staff will uh, review the application. We will follow up with um, the clients uh, and request any missing information or documentation. Once the application is ready to be mailed, uh, to be submitted, we will mail it to the uh, competent office of USCIS and we will follow up um, with the clients. We will uh, uh, provide support throughout the citizenship process. If you attend an in-person workshop, you will be assigned a table, uh, and on the table you will see um, an annotated N-400, you will have black pens, white outs, also a preparer memo. That's a page that contains useful dates uh, that are useful in determining whether the applicant is eligible for citizenship or not, to determine whether they are 18 years old or whether they've been living in the United States for the required statutory period. You will have the possibility of asking questions throughout the workshop, and uh, you will have addenda. Sometimes um, the space in the N-400, it's not sufficient to provide all the relevant information, so you will have to draft an addendum. And um, you will have access to interpreters and translated versions of N-400. And every applicant is given a folder um, that folder contains the client info page. That's a very important document because it contains screening notes. On the client info page, you will see uh, whether the applicant qualifies for a fee waiver, whether they, are, they have a disability and uh, are requesting a waiver of the English test or the civics test, et cetera, et cetera. That's the page where you will also note um, missing information, red flags, uh, 
things to follow up subsequent to the workshop or after the workshop. There's also the acknowledgement of services. That's our um, term of services that are signed at registration. You will find a copy of the applicant, uh, applicant's green card, the N-400 and also form G-28. That's the form that allows the uh, applicant to um, that allows project citizenship to be the to represent the uh, client throughout the citizenship process. Form uh, I nine twelve. That's the fee waiver request for low income uh, applicants uh, and other documents that are uh, relevant to the applicant's case, such as marriage certificates, uh, criminal dockets, the proof that the spouse of the applicant is a citizen of the United States. To attend a virtual workshop, and the, the concept is the same as an in-person workshop, it's just, again, the medium is different, but to attend a virtual workshop, you will need uh, internet access, Adobe Reader, access to Zoom, and access to a phone in case the client prefers to be called over the phone rather than joining a Zoom meeting. The application assistance uh, volunteer uh, will save the client's completed N-400, any addenda, the client info page um, in the client's folder. Uh, that's a digital folder uh, that you will have access to. And uh, you will be able to access that information. Um, you will also have training materials such as the uh, preparer's memo and other documents available through a, a link that will be shared with you. And of course, we are always available on Zoom to answer any questions. So if you have any questions, you can ask uh, during the Zoom meeting. And uh, um, again, we ask that our volunteers open PDFs using Adobe readers. There are other apps like Microsoft Edge, et cetera, et cetera. We do not use those. So please use uh, Adobe Reader. Uh, your role as the quality control attorney will be to review the application with the applicant to make sure that the application is properly completed. Uh, to get missed, to try to obtain missing information uh, and to uh, flag potential uh, uh, issues with the client's case. Uh, you will be the only attorney that the applicant talks to that day, so you play a critical role um, in, uh, um, toward our uh, high rate of approval of citizenship applications, so thank you for that. Where to start? So you will start by writing your name um, on the client info page next to quality control. Okay, so you will see a section titled quality control, you should write your name. You should read all the notes of the client uh, on the client info page that the application assistance made. Notes on, regarding missing information, perhaps undisclosed criminal charges, et cetera, et cetera. So you will review those notes and you will clearly uh, state what issues were resolved and what issues remain outstanding so that we can follow up, project citizenship staff can follow up after the workshop with the client um, to try to obtain that missing information or solve that issue. Um, if you have any concerns uh, or any, you identify any additional issues, you should note everything down on the client info page. The first um, thing that you should that should be kind of uh, immediate, you will have a sense whether the applicant speaks English or not. 
as mentioned before, one of the requirements is that the for an applicant to naturalize is that they speak English. So they must be able to have a conversation with you. Uh, the level, their level of English must not be the same as the English, level of English of a native speaker, but they must be able to have a conversation with you. So if you realize that the applicant um, does not speak enough English, please alert projects uh, citizenship staff. We do not want to submit an application for a client who will fail the English test because they don't speak English uh, well enough. Um, and also in light of the fact that the applicant may be paid $725 if they're not eligible for a fee waiver, uh, that fee is non-refundable. So we don't want to uh, submit an application uh, with a payment uh, that is non-refundable, knowing that the client uh, will be uh, denied because they failed the English test. There's more um, flexibility for applicants who are requesting a fee waiver, and that's because um, they will not pay the $725. So even if they're failing the English test, they will not lose money. But generally speaking, if you are concerned that the applicant doesn't speak English that well, please let us know. Um, also keep in mind that the applicant must answer all the questions that you're going to ask. Often there are family members who come to the appointment uh, or helpers and they answer for the client. That's not, please don't ask their family members to not do that because you're not helping the applicant. In fact, during the interview, uh, the applicant will be alone with the officer. They will not uh, have the right to have the family members present except in uh, specific circumstances. And so they must be able to answer those questions. Um, there are specific cases where an applicant has the right to an interpreter. And that's the case, as I mentioned before, of a disabled applicant who will request a waiver of the English test and the civics test, or there are some automatic exemption from the English test. If the applicant has been living in the United States for a certain amount of years, we will discuss about those exceptions shortly. Uh, you will see on the client info page whether the applicant is um, can have an interpreter. So in that case, the interpreter can uh, support with the interpretation, but if they are not, they should not answer on behalf of the applicant. Okay, regarding form N four hundred specifically, the first part of form N four hundred asks the eligibility basis of the applicant. Uh, please know that only one box should should be checked. So. If an applicant qualifies uh, on a five-year basis, you should check uh, box A. If the applicant is applying, applying through marriage because they're married to a citizen of the United States, uh, the relevant box should, box should be box B. Rarely, sometimes we have veterans who apply for citizenship uh, and are our clients. In that case, you should check box D. But these are basically the three most common options, option A, option B and option C. Also keep in mind that while the applicant must have been a resident of the United States for five years or three years, uh, they can apply, they can uh, submit their application um, 90 days, three months before uh, their anniversary, uh, the fifth anniversary, third anniversary in the United States. Something to keep in mind is a regard specifically clients who are applying on a three-year basis. Um, if um, That means that they are married to a citizen of the United States. 
uh, please uh, verify uh, whether the client has been married for three years, whether the client has been a permanent resident of the United States for three years, and whether they've been living in the United in the, with their US citizen spouse for three years, and whether their spouse has been a citizen of the United States for three years. Often spouses naturalize themselves. They were not born in the United States. So we want to verify whether they've been um, uh, citizens of the United States for uh, at least three years, because that's one of the requirements for marriage-based citizenship applications. And so three is really the number to keep in mind. Subsequently, uh, the application asks for the legal name of the applicant. That's the name as it appears on the birth certificate or passport. Um, it also asks for the name as it appears on the green card. Sometimes uh, the actual legal name and the name as it appears on the green card do not match. And that's because there may be a typo on the green card or because the um, USCIS officer uh, misspelled the last name or the first name of the applicant when they came to the United States. Uh, we also, the applicant also has to disclose nicknames or other names used, uh, such as maiden names. Uh, often for Hispanic uh, clients, they have two last names. When they move to the United States, they drop one of the two last names and they start using only one last name. That's an alias and has to be disclosed in um, the form. You can also ask the client whether they intend to apply to change their name um, as part of the citizenship process. That's very convenient for those applicants who were planning to change their name in any case. Uh, and so they can do that as part of the citizenship process without uh, filing additional documents before a court. However, if you note that the uh, notice that the client wants to change your legal name, please inform them that they will have to update uh, all their uh, documents, uh, including, and they will have to inform the um, uh, Social Security Administration, for example, that they changed their last name or their first name. We also want to uh, make sure that the Social Security number is uh, added to the application. Um, do not fill out the uh, online account number. We will not submit the applications online. We will submit the applications by regular mail. So no number should be provided in ICANN 6 of part two of the application. Uh, the, client, the, the client must provide their date of birth, the date they became residents, the country of birth and the country of citizenship, which from time to time uh, are different. Uh, so a client may be born in a certain country and be a citizen of another country. Um, during the quality control phase, you want to double check that um, the dates and the information provided in this section uh, is correct based upon the green card. However, sometimes, as mentioned before, the information provided on the green card is not correct. For example, there, was, there can be a spelling mistake of the client's name, or there can also be a mistake on the date the client became a resident. Sometimes the date of birth on the green card is not correct. So we want to draft an addendum explaining what information is wrong um, and provide the true information so that the government, so that USCIS is uh, informed. Uh, for refugee clients, um, you will see that they were, you know, their green card mentioned that they were born on January 1st of a specific year. That's very 
common for refugees because they often do not have a birth certificate because they're um, escaping war zones, war zones, et cetera, and they may not have access to that information. And they also may be stateless. So in uh, uh, item 11, you can write that they are stateless. Uh, question 12 of part two asks whether the uh, applicant has a disability preventing them from learning English and civics. As mentioned before, disabled applicants can ask a waiver of the English test and civics test. You will see whether the applicant qualifies for a disability waiver on the client info page. There's a section that clearly states whether they are applying uh, with the form N648, that's the form that the medical uh, doctor must provide, must complete and in order to request the English waiver uh, and the civics waiver. Um, if the applicant does not qualify or does not disclose that they have a disability to project citizenship, but then during the QC phase, they tell you that in fact, they have memory problems, that they will not be able to remember the questions regarding US history and civics, please let us know uh, so that we can determine whether to continue with the QC or stop the uh, quality control and uh, hold the submission of the application until the applicant gets, uh, if they in fact have a disability, um, a form N648, that's a medical certification signed by the doctor. If the applicant does not qualify for an N648 or the applicant doesn't have any sort of disability preventing them from learning English and civics, uh, they must take the English test and the civics exam. Question 13 concerns the uh, automatic exemptions of the English uh, test. Um, as I mentioned before, applicants who've been living in the United States for a certain period of time uh, and were of a certain age qualify for an automatic exemption of the English test. So they will be automatically exempt from uh, speaking, writing, and reading English. That means that they can bring their, an interpreter to the interview. Um, who will uh, interpret in, from, an, uh, from English to a language that the applicant understands. Uh, the applicant will still be required to learn the 100 uh, questions regarding history and government, um, but they will be allowed to take that civics exam in their native language. So in question 13, you want to make sure that whatever uh, is relevant, uh, whatever is relevant is that the box is checked for whatever applies specifically to um, an applicant. Uh, if an applicant qualifies for option C, meaning that they are 60 uh, years old and they've been living in the United States for 20 years, you will check the yes box, but you will also check uh, boxes A and B because also those cases apply, for example, to someone who's 60 years old and has had their green card for 20 years. Part four, ask for um, the contact information of the applicant, make sure that the phone number and email are correct. And in part five, um, the applicant must list all the addresses where they lived in the last five years. Please note, keep in mind that there is this three months requirement where the applicant must have been a resident of Massachusetts or the state where they plan to apply. So in, in, for our clients, it will be Massachusetts for at least three months prior to filing. And uh, 
we want to make sure, so that's something to keep in mind. If the client has moved to Massachusetts two months ago, they're not, they cannot apply yet. They need to wait an additional month. We also want to make sure that all the uh, um, changes, like all the addresses where the applicant uh, lived in the last five years are uh, mentioned on the N-400. So there should be no gaps in time for residences. Approximate dates where an applicant moved from an address to the other are fine. So if the applicant tells you that they do not remember when they moved to a specific address, you can ask them whether they remember whether it was winter or spring or the summertime, et cetera, et cetera. We should not list any foreign addresses, all the addresses in the United States. If a client tells you that during the five years prior to applying for citizenship, they lived abroad, that's a red flag. And you should uh, definitely um, mention that on the client info page or alert a staff member so that we can follow up with the client and we will discuss about that uh, later on. Part six regards parents of the applicant. If the parents of the applicants are not citizen of the United States, you can skip this section. However, if the applicant tells you that their parent, one of the parents or both are citizens, um, please ask whether the applicant was under 18 at the time the parent became a citizen, if the applicant got their green card before the, they turned 18, and if they live with their parent, US citizen parent, while under 18. The reason why we want to know that is that uh, sometimes uh, children of US citizens may have, born abroad, may have derived citizenship if uh, their parents naturalized before the client or before the applicant turned 18. And in that case, there's a different process. Uh, form N-400 is not the right form to, um, to uh, submit. There's a different form uh, to be submitted. And so we want to make sure that uh, the client has not derived citizenship from their parents. Part seven asks for uh, bio information. Uh, that's information that must be provided so that USCIS can perform background checks, especially focusing on criminal records. And part eight asks for uh, the employment and school history of the applicant. We will start from the current job and uh, we will list all the jobs and school um, uh, attended by the applicant in the last five years. Again, make sure that there is no, uh, there are no gaps in, uh, in time for employment. Uh, we do not need the full address of the employer. One of the questions is to list the uh, address of the employer. If applicants had many jobs in the last five years, they may not remember where the address of the employer was, but we would need a name, the city where the job, where they uh, had that job and the approximate dates when they had that specific position for that employer. Part nine regards trips outside of the United States. As I mentioned before, one of the requirements to be eligible for citizenship is that um, the applicant, um, the number of days spent outside of the United States must be less than 912 if the applicant is applying on a five-year basis or 547 if the applicant is applying on a three-year basis. And that's because uh, the applicant must meet certain physical presence requirements to be eligible for citizenship. So in other words, if the applicant has spent too much time outside of the United States, they will not be eligible for citizenship. Um, the applicant must provide you with the travel dates 
and you can ask at QC uh, if the applicant can confirm that those travel dates are correct. You can also access the I-94 travel history. You can Google I-94 uh, and by providing the name uh, and the passport information, you will be able to see all the trips that the applicant took in the last five years or since they came to the United States. That's not always accessible, but sometimes um, uh, you, you will be able to see that in the travel history. Um, also ask about trips to Canada. Clients tend to uh, not mention uh, trips that they took to Canada because of the uh, fact that they can easily enter Canada as green car holders, but that counts as a trip abroad. Um, and so as part of a QC phase, you want to check the total number of trips and the day, the total number of days spent outside of the United States. Um, and uh, you can also use apps that are uh, available uh, on the internet to count the actual days that an applicant spent outside of the United States. If the client tells you that they are not sure, you can write on the client info page that the client uh, will follow up with uh, the travel dates and we will then contact him or her uh, to follow up regarding the trips outside of the United States. Something to keep in mind when it comes to trips outside of the United States is that absences of more than one year um, break uh, continuous residence for naturalization purposes. So if an applicant tells you that they've been absent from the United States for more than one year, that's a major red flag. The client is not eligible for citizenship and not only that, uh, USCIS may also start deportation proceedings in case they apply for citizenship. Uh, despite being absent from the United States. That's very rare, uh, but it could happen. So um, we want to, uh, if a client discloses that they've been absent from the US for a long time, and that's often, uh, it can be the case, especially because of COVID, many of our clients were blocked in their country of origins that could not return. Please uh, let us know. Similarly, absences uh, of uh, more than six months, uh, but less than one year can um, create uh, issues for the applicant. Specifically, um, an applicant can, there, USCIS, if an applicant left the United States for more than six months, but less than one year, uh, USCIS will presume that they disrupted their continuous presence in the US. And uh, meaning that, uh, and can presume that they intended to abandon their uh, green card, their residency in the United States. Uh, that's a rebuttable presumption, meaning that we can provide USCIS with documents uh, or evidence that prove that the applicant had no intention of permanently leaving the United States. Uh, examples can be proved that the applicant filed their taxes while they were gone or, um, uh, that they did not obtain employment abroad, uh, that they kept access to their residence in the United States, they maintained the lease, et cetera, et cetera. If a client discloses or you notice that the client left for more than six months, please note everything down on the client info page. We also have travel warning handouts for clients to let them know what evidence to gather and bring at the interview. Let's see that there is a question. Yes, so are we supposed to bring a laptop computer to an in-person workshop? The answer is no. Uh, we, you will fill out the uh, application. Um, we will provide it with a 
paper and 400. So we will, you will be handwriting and uh, uh, the application. So there's no need for uh, a laptop. Okay. Part 10 uh, concerns the marital history of an applicant. We want to list all uh, valid marriages uh, that the applicant had in his entire life or her entire life. Uh, we will start by the current marital status. Um, only one box, of course, should be checked. Sometimes clients are unsure whether they are divorced or not, or they will tell you that they are separated. Uh, so you should ask whether they are legally separated or whether they are simply uh, not living with their spouses. Uh, if they tell you that they never went before a court to get a separation, but that they simply split and they now live in different places, then you should check that they're still married, okay? That they're not legally separated. Um, we also, uh, if the client is married, we want to know the name of the client, uh, the, their date of, uh, the name of the spouse, their date of birth, the day they got married and where they live. Uh, and also their immigration status. We want to know whether the client, the client's spouse is a US citizen, it's a, the resi is a resident, or sometimes clients may tell you that their spouse is undocumented. Please note that down. That is a red flag for the spouse because the, the client is informing the government that their spouse is without status in the United States. So we need to follow up with the client to discuss the risks of that. Uh, something to keep in mind in quality control is that uh, marriages cannot overlap. Uh, one of the requirements to naturalization is that an applicant is not married to two people at the same time. So if you notice that an applicant was married to two people at the same time, that's a red flag. Uh, also, um, if the applicant is estranged from their spouse and have no information, uh, on the whereabouts of the uh, spouse, please assume that the applicant is still married. Um, perhaps the uh, other spouse requested a divorce without the knowledge of the applicant, but if the applicant isn't sure about their divorce status, we should check that they're married. Let me see, there is another question. So for um, law students, what we, uh, have volunteers, uh, um, law students, volunteers uh, attending workshop, what they will do is application assistance. So they will fill out the uh, citizenship application that will be reviewed then uh, by the uh, immigration, uh, by the uh, attorney at quality control. So law students can fill out the, the application and then that application will be reviewed by the quality control volunteer who must be an attorney, a licensed attorney. Okay. Also something to keep in mind regarding marital history uh, regards, um, as I mentioned before, applications on a three-year basis, meaning that the applicant was mar is married to a citizen of the United States. We want to make sure that the applicant qualifies on a three-year basis, and therefore we need to ask whether they're marrying with a US citizen for at least three years, whether they're still living uh, with a US citizen, uh, whether they've been living with them for three years, and whether the spouses naturalized three years ago. At the earliest. Okay, part 11 regards children. 
children for uh, uh, N400 purposes mean uh, stepchildren, adult children, adopted children, and children who unfortunately passed away. Um, so we need to have information on each child. We need their name, uh, their date of birth, country of birth, address, and the relationship to the uh, applicant. Again, stepchildren, a stepchild, biological child, or deceased child, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If the child lives with the applicant in the address section, you can write "lives with me." There is space for only four children in the N400, and so if the uh, client has an additional child, a fifth child, or more children, you will have to draft an addendum. And what you should be very mindful when completing this section is the immigration status of the clients, of the applicant's uh, children. Ask if the child is a citizen of the United States. If the answer is no, ask if the child is a permanent resident uh, of the United States, meaning that they have their own green card. And um, if the answer is yes, then the client should provide you with the A number, with the green card number of the applicant. Um, if the child is not a US citizen, the child is not a resident, but lives in the United States, then you need to ask what's the immigration status of the child. And that's because there are potential, potential smuggling issues if a client brought their children to the United States illegally. They may be um, not only ineligible for citizenship because they uh, smuggle their children in, in the United States, but it could also be deportable or removable from the United States. So. Um, we also want you want to ask what's the status, immigration status of their child. Uh, perhaps the child has a, a student visa and they're studying in the United States, so that's totally fine. But if they tell you that the child is undocumented, that's a major red flag. You also want to ask what was the role of the applicant? Did they pay someone to bring the child to the United States? Did the child cross the border alone, et cetera, et cetera. Another requirement for a citizenship is that the child, uh, that the parent supports their children, supports they, their dependents. So if in reviewing the application, you realize that the client doesn't know where their children are living and the children are underage, that's a red flag. You should ask, how come they don't know where the children are, where their children are living? Uh, is it because they're not in contact with their child? Is it because the child was kidnapped, et cetera, et cetera. And something, this is something that you should note on the client info page. And that's something also that you want to investigate because as mentioned before, uh, one of the requirements is that the um, parents supports their uh, children. And so you want to ask whether they send money to their child uh, in the country of origin uh, or whether they fail to support they are not in contact, they don't care, et cetera, et cetera. Those are these, these are all questions that can play an important role in the client's eligibility for citizenship. Um, the failure to support dependent must be, a dependent must be willful. And uh, that doesn't necessarily require a court order or an agreement uh, in place with the uh, biological uh, parent of the, of the child. Um, and, uh, so the fact that there's no court order regarding child support is not really relevant. And also um, willfulness means that the client um, is willingly not paying child support. They're not supporting their children. Inability to pay because of unemployment or financial difficulties do not count uh, toward the uh, failure to support a dependent. So 
just to summarize, ask whether they support their dependents, and if not, ask why they do not support their dependents, and note everything down on the client info page. If you have any questions, you can ask project citizenship staff, um, and you can write an addendum to explain why they fail to support the dependent. Uh, good moral character. What's good moral character? That's a very complex uh, concept, and uh, it basically means that the person is a, a good person, a person that in a way is deserving of US citizenship, if you want. Um, and uh, part 12 of the uh, form N-400 aim at verifying whether the applicant uh, meets that requirement of being a person of good moral character. Uh, these are yes or no questions. Whenever the client answers yes to one of the questions, that means that there must be an addendum explaining why they answered yes. So if the answer is no, that is means that the, the client has to explain why the answer is no to that question provided. This will make sense when I provide you with some examples. In general, when you are reviewing this section with the applicant, please break down complicated questions in understandable terms. These are complex questions. They're very difficult to understand also for native English speakers. So uh, you should perhaps try to provide uh, simplified or understandable explanations of these questions. Unlawful acts. A person who committed unlawful acts are, um, uh, may be a person that lacks good moral character. That's a very broad concept. A, a conviction is not required. Um, and uh, USCIS will consider uh, the act as well as any uh, mitigating factor or fav favorable uh, factor um, in determining whether the uh, unlawful act makes a person um, ineligible uh, for citizenship. Um, other causes of lack of moral characters are false claims to US citizenship. Uh, a client uh, claimed to be a citizen of the United States, they registered to vote, or perhaps they actually voted in a US election. Uh, they may be an, in, not eligible for citizenship because of lack of good moral character. If the applicant tells you that they voted, stop the application, let project, citizen, uh, project citizenship know, um, and also write detailed notes on the client info page. If the client registered to vote, but did not actually vote it, they must unregister before they apply for citizenship. Um, and uh, sometimes, you know, when the client receives public benefits, they may be registered to vote, even if they're not eligible. So that's something that happens, unfortunately. Uh, question five regards confinement to a mental institution or a declaration uh, from a court that the client is legally incompetent. Uh, confinement to a mental institution must be involuntary uh, or must be and must be the result, can be the result of a judicial action. And uh, the way to explain this to a client is basically were you ever forced to stay in a hospital? or in a, in a facility against your will? If the answer is yes, then you should check the yes box and provide additional information on the, uh, on the addendum and the client info page. Uh, declaration of legal incompetence, it's a court uh, the, the finding of a judge that the uh, applicant is uh, incompetent um, and therefore there must be a guardianship in place. Taxes, as mentioned before, often are the cause of the client not being successful in naturalizing. Um, 
we um, cannot uh, sometimes clients owe money to the IRS or uh, other local authority, uh, local uh, or state tax authorities. Um, and so they need to either enter a repayment plan before we can apply for citizenship or pay any amount that is due uh, to the IRS or to the tax authorities. Otherwise, USCIS will find that they lack good moral character because they do owe money in, in taxes. Um, sometimes clients <clears throat> do not work or do not meet the financial threshold to uh, file taxes. We'll answer no uh, to question seven. Question seven asks, have you ever not filed a federal uh, state or tax return? If the answer is yes, ask the client why. Is that because you didn't work? Is that because you didn't make enough money? Uh, if that's the case, then we can simply explain uh, that uh, the client was not required to file taxes in an addendum. But if the answer is that, for example, the client simply was not aware that they have to pay taxes, that the red flag, we cannot submit the application until that issue is solved because otherwise the client will be denied. Furthermore, we have questions regarding um, uh, memberships, organizations, associations, parties, and uh, clubs. Uh, the client must disclose involvement uh, with the Communist Party, totalitarian party, terrorist organizations. Um, and if uh, any of the questions asked in item 10 uh, is yes, you should provide additional explanation uh, in an addendum. Okay. Uh, the remain other questions concern um, uh, participation in military and police units. That's not a problem uh, because in certain countries, for example, joining the military is a compulsory requirement for men. Um, and so uh, that often is the case that the answer will be yes to question 15A, or perhaps the client worked as a police officer in a different in the country of origin. That's not the issue, but we need to provide again additional information in addendum. Uh, the client must disclose whether they have received weapon trainings. Again, this is not a problem uh, most of the times, but we still need to provide information. The client may have a license to carry, so we want to mention that. The client may have received weapons training while they were in the military in the country of origin. That has to be disclosed. Also regarding the immigration history, uh, the client uh, needs to tell you whether they one of the questions is whether the client was ever in removal proceedings or deportation proceedings. We normally screen clients for that, but sometimes the client will disclose that they were before an immigration judge in immigration court only at uh, the workshop and to the QC attorney, quality control attorney. Also criminal history um, has an impact on the eligibility for citizenship. Uh, the client must disclose any citations that they received, including moving violations and speeding tickets. They must disclose all arrests and charges, even if they were dismissed, those charges. And the applicant must provide certified copies of dockets uh, or dispositions for all criminal charges. Uh, we screen our clients for that. So you will find information on the client info page, uh, but sometimes clients will disclose that they indeed were, went to court, that they were arrested only at the workshop. So make sure to verify whether uh, you know, there's any issue in relation to the criminal history. That's very important because um, 
not only the client to receive the conviction during the statutory period of three years or five years, maybe in a, not eligible for citizenship because of a lack of good moral character, but separately, they may also be removable or deportable from the United States. So we definitely don't want to submit an application where, when there's any risk that a client may be deported from the United States. That often happens for, for example, for uh, drug-related convictions uh, and um, assault and battery convictions, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's something to be extremely mindful of. And also in terms of conviction, uh, there must be the conviction for immigration purposes is either a finding of guilt uh, by a jury or following a deal, uh, uh, plea bargaining, but it could also be a continuance without um, a finding. So also that it, it's a conviction for immigration purposes. Uh, Quoth is not a conviction for Massachusetts, but it is for immigration for the federal government. Uh, we uh, try to complete the immigration chart before the appointment. So you will sh you will should be able to, uh, there should be a, a, a criminal chart available in the folder of the client. If not, uh, please make sure to complete the section uh, based on the dockets provided in the client's uh, file. Um, and as I mentioned before, drug convictions, uh, theft, fraud crimes, firearm offenses, uh, sex crimes, assault and battery with dangerous weapons crimes, multiple driving without uh, under the influence in, during the statutory period can cause a client to be not eligible for citizenship and also sometimes uh, deportable and removable from the United States. Another section of the N-400 aims at uh, identifying false uh, misinformation and false information provided to US uh, officials of the United States. Um, me, uh, you should write an addendum if an applicant ever lied to uh, a US official of the United States. Uh, you will want to know what was the lie, what was the reason for the lie, when that happened, where that happened. A lie could be, for example, providing a fake driver's license. Uh, to a US government official, it could be providing false names when crossing the border, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, I don't wanna take too much time. So I'll try to speak through these remaining slides. Um, other questions regard um, uh, certain uh, issues that the client may have had in the past. For example, uh, one of the question is whether the applicant has been an habitual drunkard the way of explaining that is, have you ever had an issue with alcohol? Uh, be aware of a history of driving, of convictions for driving under the influence that may lead the officer to find that the applicant is an habitual drunkard and may, therefore may be not eligible for citizenship. If the client was a prostitute, if the client was married uh, to two people at the same time. Those are all circumstances where uh, the client may not be eligible for citizenship. Again, smuggling, issues with smuggling that ties back to the uh, uh, undocumented children in the United States. If a person helps someone to cross the border illegally, they may be not eligible for citizenship. Okay. Um, we want to know whether the applicant was ever in deportation proceedings or removal proceedings, 
Um, and that's again because USCIS will scrutinize this application and we may determine that the client obtained their green card uh, illegally or uh, that their immigration status is not, uh, is not valid. Ask how the applicant obtained their green card, if, if through marriage, if through asylum, uh, any marriage of less than two years may be suspicious to USCIS. So if a client married, uh, obtained their green card through marriage to a US citizen, and then they divorced uh, after two years uh, and remarried their uh, spouses, their first spouse, all of these situations can be uh, very, um, suspicious to USCIS who can further investigate the issue. To check whether the applicant has ever been in removal proceeding, you can go on the EOIR website. Uh, that's uh, where uh, you will see um, a page where you can add the A number of a client. That's a US, the USCIS number that appears on the green card. And uh, by adding that number, you will be able to see whether the applicant was ever in deportation proceedings or in removal proceedings. And if you have a hit, please ask the client what happened. Why did you go to court? Uh, what, was the, uh, what did the judge find regarding your case, et cetera, et cetera. I will skip the asylee. Okay. Selective service. If uh, every male who is under 26, um, must uh, be must register for the selective service. You can verify whether an applicant has uh, registered for the selective serving service um, at the uh, website of the selective service system. You can add the client's name, uh, their a, their uh, social security number, and you will be able to see whether they register or not. Um, if they are, didn't register, uh, you can help them register uh, by providing them with the form that is available uh, either at the in-person workshop or uh, on the um, folder that will be shared with you uh, so that we can help the applicant registering. If the applicant is now between 26 and uh, 31 years old, um, and they didn't register for the selective service, you need to complete an addendum explaining why they failed to register and note everything on the client info page. Um, sometimes the client uh, um, tell you that they were not aware of their obligation to register, especially if they moved to the United States when they were already adult, uh, were perhaps 18 or in their 20s. If an applicant is over, um, and also for applicants who are between 26 and 31, uh, 31 we need to submit a, a selective service uh, letter that has to be completed by the selective service uh, system. And we can help projects, uh, project citizenship can help the applicant doing that. If the applicant failed to register and they are now over 31, they don't need to provide any additional documents, but they need to provide um, an addendum. They need to write an addendum, explain why they failed to register. Finally, the last step of the uh, uh, citizenship application um, and the citizenship process is taking the oath of allegiance. There's the oath uh, ceremony where uh, a judge or USCIS officer will administer the oath of allegiance. And that's the part uh, uh, that marks the end of the application process and of the citizenship process and the applicant 
once they take the oath of allegiance, will become citizen of, uh, citizens of the United States. Regarding the ability to understand and to take the oath of allegiance, question 45 to 50 of the N400 ask whether the applicant supports the constitution, whether they're willing to bear arms on, the, on behalf of the United States, uh, to perform work that is import, important for the country, et cetera, et cetera. The answer should normally be yes. Um, there is the possibility of um, changing the oath of allegiance, specifically item 48 and 49 for uh, applicants who are unwilling to bear arms or perform any type of military work, even if it does not involve fighting because of moral or uh, religious um, reasons that ha happens often with Jehovah witnesses who cannot bear arms. So they will answer no to question 48 and no to question 49. That's okay, uh, but we need to provide an explanation of why they're not willing to bear arms on, the, on behalf of the United States. Okay, um, after the workshop is over, um, um, uh, Project Citizenship will uh, um, review the uh, application. We will follow up with the client regarding missing documents and we will mail the application once the, uh, everything is ready to be mailed. Okay, let me see, I have a question here. Yes, so uh, the uh, unnoted hand 400 and the PowerPoint and the, the uh, preparer memo will be shared uh, with you. You will be given access to a, a, a link where you can see all the material uh, that is useful to prepare a form N400. The question is, will the guidance on the Zoom slides will be, provi will slides be provided on the unnoted N400? Now the Zoom slides will be available, uh, will be made available to you so you can access that presentation. You will not have access to the Zoom slides during the workshop, but you will have access to the unnoted N400. Okay. Are there any additional questions? Sorry, took more than I was expecting. No worries. Beautiful. We'll give it a quick second in case any questions do happen to come up. But um, in case, also feel free to stop me anyone if any questions do come up. But with that being said, thank you so much, Gloria, and to our attendees. And then I will follow up with um, a copy of the slides as well, which I can email out to everyone. And um, also feel free to register for the upcoming workshop as well. And with that being said, I wish everyone a great rest of their day. Thank you, have a nice day.